Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook, and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon evaluation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. In today's episode, we're joined by Alex Goat, who is the CEO of Liberty, a London-based youth specialist consultancy and creative studio with 22 years of experience working with brands such as Google and Nike. I met Alex on a trade mission to Nashville in 2018. It was one of those rare business trips where the group really bonded, and we had a great few days bowling around Nashville pitching our businesses to anyone who would listen. But I was impressed with Liberty, the way they connect brands to a youth audience, using young people to work on the creative, and I really liked the fact that they were genuinely trying to do good in the world. Alex shares her journey, starting from her background in events to her time at Iris, to when she joined Liberty in 2012. She worked her way up to MD and oversaw Liberty taking on private equity investment in 2016 from an impact investment fund, all the way through to the eventual sale of the business to the Mission Group in 2022 and its subsequent integration. Hope you enjoy our conversation. I always think the best place to start is to just tell me a bit about yourself and a bit about Liberty. Yeah, sure. Hi, Barnaby. I'm Alex Goats. I'm the CEO of Liberty. Um, I will start off with a couple of minutes intro to Liberty. We are a youth specialist consultancy and creative studio. been based in London, but working globally for brands for coming up to 22 years now. Um, we're really lucky to work with some really amazing disruptive brands from Google and YouTube through to Nike and Foot Locker governments, NGOs, kind of you name it, anybody that really has, a, I guess, a problem or an opportunity with a younger audience. Um, typically, kind of that's the kind of Gen Z moniker, but also looking at kind of younger people from that as well. Yeah, um, that's us. Yeah, and I was just going to ask how long you've been there. Yeah, so a part of history to me, I started off in events way back when, I won't say exactly how long ago, um, working kind of in experiences, brand experiences, um, moved to an agency called Iris for eight years, looking at everything from population level behavior change through to Unilever and all of the kind of global FMCGs. And then in 2012, as London was hosting the Olympics, I decided I wanted to go somewhere smaller and somewhere that drove kind of positive social impact. That's always been a really important part of who I am and what I believe in. Liberty was set up as an experiment that is 22 years ago, really before sort of social enterprise or purposeful business was something that was talked about in the mainstream as almost as a bit of an experiment to see whether you could use the power of marketing to change the world rather than just to sell more stuff to people that they didn't need. And, you know, that really excited me as a concept, but also having worked with them and knowing the kind of creativity that you can get from working and directly with young people and young audiences around the world made for a really exciting opportunity back in 2012 for me personally. That had already been going for about five years at that point. Yeah, about 10 years. As I say, kind of as an independent agency based in Brixton in South London. And, you know, I felt really lucky over the time that I've been here that we have, it very much started off in more of the kind of impact space. So lots of great work with charities and kind of UK government who were then trying to target young people who were traditionally hard to reach, but obviously Liberty was born before social media. 
So, you know, young people went from being the hardest to reach to the easiest to reach when you come to social platforms and influencers. So it's been a really interesting journey. And obviously, young audiences shift and change, as we all do in our society and the world kind of evolves around us. So it's a never-ending challenge thinking about how brands can better connect with a younger audience. And so what sort of size and shape was Liberty when you joined? Were there two founders? Is that right? Two founders. So... Yeah, I guess the kind of the nuts and bolts of it, a kind of potted history. Liberty was started by two brilliant founders, Michelle Morgan and Sam Conniff. And as I say, over the course of the first sort of 10 years of its history, had a really interesting kind of very broad tapestry of a different kind of projects it worked on from, again, kind of big kind of programs, to lots of different things. I joined in 2012 as client services director with an ambition that we kind of evolved from someone who was great kind of creativity project based to someone who had, I guess, kind of higher aspirations on working with really interesting global brands and kind of, I guess, maturing the way that we work with young people to make sure that we stayed as an agency, unique and kind of offering something that you couldn't just get from another agency. And we very much kind of did that for the first few years of the time that I spent with the Liberty Leadership Team, you know, starting to work with brands like Google, like Barclays, um, lots of really interesting kind of much bigger brands and much bigger pieces of work. It's kind of interesting because this, I guess, was the precursor to thinking about our acquisition. In 2016, we took some private equity investment, which was a really interesting time because it wasn't sort of standard PE investment. It was social impact investment. So new funds were being set up in and around that time, looking at impact businesses and looking at how to scale social impact businesses, which I think, again, the concept in sort of 2016, it's funny, we talk a lot about purpose business now. But back in 2016, the concept of it, like, can we do good and demonstrate that we're doing good and make money at the same time? You know, are those two things uh, non-compatible? So we had a really interesting six months or so where we were going after what was kind of an impact investment and looking at how that would not just sustain the business, but also kind of fuel business growth in lots of different ways. And then, as I said, that led us into, I guess, what would have been an eventual exit plan on the horizon. I mean, it's really interesting about the private equity thing, because my perception of private equity has always been they're sort of interested in sort of larger scale businesses. So what was it about Liberty, do you think, that appealed to them? It was interesting. Do you know what? I went to about three years after we took on social impact investment, I went to a KPMG dinner about social investment. And they said, if you got social investment before 2018, it was like the dark ages of impact investing. Right. I think it was an opportunity for people to try something new. And certainly the fund that we were part of was looking at, I guess, a smaller investment pools and funds than historic kind of PE firms would have done. And I think one of the interesting learnings that we had was that the fund that we were part of was looking at impact in the broadest sense of the word. So whilst there were sort of seven or eight businesses within that fund, we were all incredibly different. We weren't audience specific or impact specific or sector specific. So I think one of the interesting things, again, of knowing organizations that I do and they kind of take private equity backing is you're not just bringing in money, you're bringing in experts as well in your specific field or your sector. I think it's fair to say that with such a wide variety of investments, it's kind of difficult to then bring that some of that specialism around growth in. And I think, you know, again, if I had my sort of time again, I think you'd probably look at if you were going to bring in investment in some way that isn't through traditional acquisition, finding individuals or organisations for whom they can add more than just money, I think would have been really, really interesting in that space. So that was kind of my next question was, 
what did they kind of offer beyond the money? Did they ask for a seat on the board or what were the sort of... The impact investors, so there was money that went in. Again, kind of fair to say, kind of in all that of transparency, it was actually to look at scaling the business with an adjacent business rather than necessarily just purely for Liberty's own growth, which was an experiment which didn't wholly succeed. But I think that's kind of one of the, the interesting things about equity investment. They took a seat on the board. And I think one of the things which they were brilliant at with us was doubling down on how we measure our impact. And that is something, an specialism that you could bring in that we wouldn't necessarily have. So we went from we do nice things for young people through to having a quite a rigorous social impact report at the end of every financial year, which was great for us and really great for some clients. But I think the interesting thing is around sort of social impact businesses. At that time, it wasn't a huge value to our commercial clients. They loved to work with us because they knew they got something different in terms of what they wanted from a creative agency. And they felt good about themselves, but it wasn't necessarily something that became business critical to our growth, which again, I think would be different if we were looking at that now in 2023, but I don't know how different. So that was the main thing. So seats on the board are kind of controlling, you know, there's a kind of an overall sort of stake and a kind of all the kind of legal stuff that goes with kind of rights of veto and everything. And I guess, you know, taking on that equity and that investment in 2016 was the kind of precursor to, okay, at some point, we will exit this business at some point in the future, the horizon with which I kind of was kind of mutually agreed. Just taking a step back, what would a typical engagement, just from a sort of client perspective, what would a typical engagement look like? And adjacent to that is like how many full-time staff does Liberty have? And then how much do you sort of go out and find those young people to work with? Yeah, so, I mean, the typical client's, we're really lucky. People don't necessarily always need a specialist when they're going kind of great guns already. That People often require someone like a specialist of an audience when they have a big opportunity with a youth audience that they can spot or a challenge with a youth audience that they can spot. And so in that way, I guess we work across both of those lenses. So whether that is helping kind of uncover the next understanding of how the next generation is thinking and feeling about a specific sector or product through to kind of designing bigger programs to attract a better kind of Gen Z consumer um, through to kind of much more sort of social impact based programs about uh, big kind of issues, for example, internet safety, um, young talent, the future of young talent. So really very much ranging in scale from kind of small off one-off projects to kind of multi-year projects for global brands and kind of a myriad of different things in between. And the way that we kind of brought young people into that was by very practically having an open door policy in Brixton for young people to come in and work with us. But then strategically, as we began to take on lots more work that was global, built out a network of young talent, young creatives, young activists, young entrepreneurs who would come in and co-create and make our work with us. And that in itself is, again, is a, is a business model that is not always easy to do because it's kind of easier just to use the talent in the room. But our view is that bringing the audience into the making of our work makes that work more effective for our clients and more authentic for the audience. And in that way, you know, driving, you know, we should be the best creative agency that our clients have ever worked with and driving positive social impact rather than kind of the other way around. Did you find that when you started measuring this or sort of after the private equity investment, that sort of started to improve or what did you kind of learn from that measuring process? 
Definitely. I mean, I think the way that we've always looked at our social impact is twofold. One, the macro. So thinking about the kind of work that we are engaged with by brands to do and what is the macro kind of impact on young people or society more broadly. For example, a big piece of work that we launched last year was a global brand platform for Speedo, all about getting marginalised communities to find their joy in the pool and working at a kind of national, a pilot level and then global level on how we encourage more young people to learn to swim through to kind of big programmes about digital citizenship with Google and YouTube. And so it's very clear to be able to understand, to start to begin to understand, as you would any kind of campaign effectiveness measure in the creative industries, what the macro impact of those things could be. We also align those to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So how do we marry? How are we able to look at our macro impact? But critically, what we've always done as well is report on our micro impact. So that is the skills and experience, the cultural capital and the social mobility that we drive by bringing young people and young talent into the making of our work. So we measure that not only qualitatively, so their personal experience, but also in terms of like the hard and fast metrics in terms of, for example, for the last two years, despite kind of coming out of that pandemic space, there's been £100,000 that have been paid directly to young people through the making of our work. I can't remember off the top of my head what the annual kind of, or the, the hourly London living wage rate is. I think it's about £12 an hour. Our average is £52 an hour that we pay young people for working on our work with us. So some of those kind of critical hard measures, as well as the qualitative impact that we know we've had in young people's lives. Cool. So they put their money in in 2016. And you were MD by this point, because you started off applying service direction. What point did you take on the MD role? I was made MD just when I came back from maternity leave. So 2015, which was great. And I know that. And then, yes, so was part of the impact investment discussions. Ultimately, obviously, that decision comes down to founders. And then, so, yes, as I say, we went through that process and tried some interesting new things. Some of those things worked and some of them didn't work. And then in uh, 2017, decided to kind of double back down on the agency side of what Liberty was. So there was um, plans to explore being much more of a publisher across the internet. MCNs were a big thing at the time, multi-channel networks. So looking at whether that was something that we would move into, I think found that the runway that you need for those kind of projects is probably longer than we had from a commercial point of view. So I actually said, you know, what we're great at and what we're really known at is being a great youth-focused creative consultancy and agency and really motored forward with that single-minded proposition when it came to the market. I think one of the challenges that we've always had is being quite difficult to describe. And so people, people who work with us, people who work for us, young people, our clients go, there's something really special about this business, but it's not always easy to put down on a piece of paper. And actually doing lots and lots of different things meant that it was harder to scale and to grow. And then sort of what, can you talk a bit then about the eventual sale of the business and how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I think with something like an investment impact investor, you know that there's going to be an exit at some point. I think that was quite open for quite a long time. We explored lots of different things. We explored employee ownership trusts. We explored other investors. And I think during, one of the challenges, as I say, as a specialist agency and anybody listening that runs an age specialist in some sort of way will probably empathize with this. You're constantly on a a new business drive because lots of the work that you do is project-based because you're a specialist. So therefore, one of the things that we identified in terms of long-term stability and security for the organization was being part of an organization where we had access to more clients and more diverse resources, practically. 
So that was definitely what drove the first conversations around exit, supported by we have an impact investor who wants to exit at some point and we have two founders who will also kind of want to exit as part of that. But the drive genuinely was how can Liberty fulfill its potential? And I think we all felt very strongly as a board that Liberty would fulfill its potential quickest and the most successfully by being part of a bigger organisation, which was 2019, that's six months before pandemic, that we made that decision. And it was really interesting. I mean, I think it actually, some of it, the first couple of conversations came from me being out in Cannes and talking to some agencies that I thought were great and quite openly saying, look, we're thinking about our what next. Would you be interested in? Pretty much everybody said yes, because we have a small but mighty, we have a an amazing reputation, an amazing client list, and actually probably much bigger from the size of the agency that we actually are. And so I spent five or six months having in conversations with people who I thought would were interesting, would be interesting homes for us, would value not just what we bring commercially, but what we bring in an impact point of view. And that, as we started out, the process was very important to everybody, including the impact investor, actually, which was where will our impact be protected the most? And some of those conversations got quite far. And some kind of got part, didn't get that far because of the sort of size and scale that we were. And it then was literally about three weeks, I think, before, no, it must have been about a month before the pandemic. We went, look, if we're going to do this, rather than just relying on my contacts or our board contacts, let's make sure that we engage this properly and see it through. So I think we signed on the letter of intent with our acquisition partners a couple of weeks before the pandemic. And actually, that was really good because as a small independent business, COVID was hard, you know, unequivocally COVID was hard for um, for us and for pretty much most other agencies and most other agencies certainly that were specialists. So that really just fueled the need and the desire to be part of a bigger organisation for that stability side. And who was it you worked with on the M&A side? So I worked with brilliant team advertising M&A, so headed up by Chris and it's his company, but I felt like they were really great partners for us. We met a lot we met a lot of different advisors, got lots of different recommendations. Um, some in the kind of creative industry, some of those who are the, for the first names you'd go to just don't deal in the size of agencies that we were. And then some others who deal with agencies or businesses about our size weren't specialists. His and his team felt like they knew us and our sector from day one. They'd sold or they'd been working with another youth specialist agency. So I guess knew the opportunities and the challenges that a specialist like that provides. And I just felt like we would get really good, really good service from them, which we absolutely did through the course of the year or so that we were working together. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll up in the video production space and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. Can you talk just briefly sort of summarize the process with them? What do they do? Do they go out and contact people within their network and then do some cold outreach as well? Or how do they kind of find potential buyers? Really collaborative. So as far as I'm without knowing kind of all the detail, there's a service that they have, which I think other M&A consultants have in some respect, which is kind of getting you ready for sale. So really probably thinking more strategically, maybe 12 to 18 months out and what do you need to do in your business to make yourselves as valuable, I guess, as possible. I think given that we'd already spent six months or so 
investigating some of that on our own as a board, it felt like that wasn't what we needed. And actually, we could kind of see on the horizon entering into COVID that at some point, you know, we'd run out of runway. And so the most important thing is we find a really great home for Liberty. So Chris and his team uh, drew up a long list. I, I'd identified, I shared a lot. And so it was really, it was actually really useful for me to have done some of those initial conversations on my own because I could, you know, some so some really big global organizations, the big consultancies, lots of the big agencies and some other kind of left field organizations too. What that meant was I had a really good sense in my own, you know, as CEO and as someone who's really passionate and proud of a business, you know your shortcomings, but you instinctively think your business is great, right? And that's otherwise you wouldn't be there. And so what I had a really good sense of is what people on the market more broadly thought was valuable about liberty and what perhaps impact side of things wasn't, being honest. Yeah, I think it was a nice to have, but we certainly, anybody that we talked to, thought it was great that we did the nice things that we did with young people, but what they wanted was the youth specialism, which was a really interesting learning for us. And quite a lot of difficult conversations at a board level, given that kind of five years previously, we'd sort of taken on social impact investment because that was going to be the future. I think perhaps that was just at a time because we were in COVID and really no one was thinking of anything past the next couple of weeks rather than, you know, really long term. But that was quite an awakening, I think, for us, which is feeling like there would be some sort of like multiplier value of, or not even a multiplier, but some additional value that being an impact-based business would drive, which there wasn't. How did you settle upon the eventual? Yeah, so we had a lot, so we had a long list. Uh, yeah, how did you kind of find the eventual buyer? We had a long list and Chris and Rick and his team did outreach for us. And we had a lot of really interesting conversations with, again, a whole host of different organisations from big consultancies through to other independents who were looking to acquire. And I guess there were sort of two or three players on the eventual shortlist, of which one of them was probably the most surprising when it came to not just their offer and what they were offering, but would have taken us into quite a different space It not being creative agencies. It was more in the media side. And so we actually went into a period of exclusivity with them first. And after a while, for many reasons, which I can kind of come on to, it just felt like it wasn't going to be the right fit. And so we went back to, I guess, where I felt we had the best connection with a, an organization called the Mission Group, who acquire really interesting independent organizations you know for everything that we kind of talked about them they're like there's brilliant creativity happening in independent agencies but too many of those people running them like myself spend most of their time on all of the operational side of things so mission gave us an opportunity to centralize lots of the kind of the more operational side of the business and enable us to still you know act and you know trade as liberty act as liberty retain the specialism that we have but sitting underneath a brilliant creative agency group called Crow Group. And that has been absolutely the right home for us. And I, again, I can kind of come on to talk about that. But I guess the sort of the time frame was we went into a period of exclusivity for several months somewhere else. But then the actual deal where we sort of signed the exclusivity side with the mission group happened very, very quickly, which was great because they've done it many times before and really knew what they were doing. And that was if I give any advice, I've informally advised quite a lot of other people now similar kind of business sizes of ours and that was one of my biggest things which is if you haven't done this before do this for somebody who has done it before yeah absolutely so with the one that didn't go anywhere obviously sort of naming no names but what was it that kind of made the deal fall apart 
I think neither one of us had done an acquisition before. Obviously, we had our advisor who's done this lots. Perhaps we were, it took us quite a long time for that reason. And I would say we lost momentum a bit with that because we were kind of, I think you don't necessarily know where to compromise. Like if I was going to do this again, I would say keep up the pace and work out where you're happy to compromise. Don't be too precious. I think, and we certainly were, we were sort of trying to hold on to everything that was liberty and not necessarily as realistic that things would definitely have to change. And I think, you know, on the other side of things, you're all quite idealistic when you think m and is a really exciting thing, but we definitely lost momentum through this process. And, you know, really transparently, I lost some good people. You know, we're very clear not to tell the rest of the business, but the, certainly the senior team knew. And because the process took so long, some people went, I don't, I'm quite uncertain about my future. Therefore, you know, there's this other new shiny thing over here. This is a great thing for Liberty. It's not necessarily, I don't know if it's a great thing for me or not. So I'm going to take something new. And that really impacted us more. So I would say the kind of losing momentum, losing good people were the main bits. And, and I think perhaps both sides were slightly too idealistic about how it would all work. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? That you you actually had people leave as a result of that. Because I think one thing that people often comment on is it, it takes up a lot of senior leadership's time when you go through an acquisition. And that means they can take their eye off the main business. And that can see a bit of a dip as a result of the acquisition. But to actually sort of lose people through that uncertainty as well, that's a massive impact on your business, right? So, yeah. It's a huge impact on the business. And as I say, I'm not, partly it was just, it was a very strange time in the world, you know, in that kind of thinking about 2020 and people just not really knowing what was going to go on in the world around them. And I think kind of being quite dissatisfied with things in general and thinking something else will fix it. I'm going to move house or I'm going to move jobs. But yeah, it definitely, if we'd done it and done it quickly, I think we may well have lost, we may well have lost someone because they didn't feel it was the right home, but I think they certainly wouldn't have lost others. And so, yeah, that would be my biggest thing is if you're going to do a deal, do it and do it as quickly as you possibly can. So you keep up that momentum and there isn't something as well worn called deal fatigue. And I think that kind of happened on both sides. And then you kind of get to a point you think, why are we doing this again? And that's something that I would absolutely avoid. And having had the lucky opportunity to have a second bite at it we pushed it forward within weeks knowing that that was you know it's not something that i ever wanted to repeat again yeah let's say deals are like concrete they get harder yeah no absolutely and also when you're going at pace you know there's things that you can deliberate on forever and there's other things where you know as again i kind of i feel like i learned a lot about myself in that process and i learned a lot about a business and what's really important and where it's like it's like any negotiation you know, go into it and you work out what's it called, your battler. You know, you work out what you're willing to compromise on and where your red lines are. And I don't think anyone on Liberty's side, you know, had done that first time round, but we were really clear on it second time round. It was like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that contract's fine. And so it was, you know, that in itself, as I say, it's interesting now advising some other companies just on formally through friends and networks. Those are the things I definitely will sort of say to them first time round, work out what's really important to you. So tell me a bit more about the mission group and this centralizing of services that they do. So there's the mission group, right? And then there's the Crow. Is that a sort of group within the group? Yes. So overall, we're part of the mission group. And as I say, a really, really exciting, really dynamic group of agencies, which are quite broad. So quite a regional representation from the UK point of view. And some really, really interesting kind of different specialisms within them. And so I guess we were brought in as part of one of the kind of creative groups, just I think because of the size of us, actually, it's kind of easier reporting as to one group. And actually, I found that really beneficial because you get to know, you know, with this 1,500 people across the world, actually getting to know 
150 of them is much easier than getting to know kind of that group and finding your place within that. Again, so one of this was actually, you know, are there clients that we can share when there's a, a client that says, oh, I've got early careers talent problem or I've got a Gen Z problem because they're not interested in my sort of sector long term. We want to be the, the first port of call for those. But also from our side of things, you know, what we wanted was we wanted to be able to tap into all of the different specialisms which we didn't have the money to have in under our own roof. So from production, through, you know, digital production, film production, media, all of those things. And the ambition around mission is really exciting. For example, they've just launched a performance media agency called Turbine, with which we're already working with really closely. And there's, you know, internal digital capabilities which enable us to be able to offer a much wider variety of services to our clients than we ever would have been able to on our own. And critically within that, there's a kind of commercial side of it, but also a quality side. But being a small independent, you'd work with somebody else who had the capacity at the time your project's there. And lots of the time that was great. And sometimes it wasn't great. And so actually for us to be able to know that we can now, as part of the group, offer up solutions which are much bigger and more holistic than they would have been before because we have access to a resource that we trust and know and trust is really exciting. And I think it's, it's, for me, it's a really exciting model with which way to do business. And what's the sort of back office stuff that they're putting together? Is it just finance, HR, recruitment? Yeah. So all of the commercial, all of the finance side of things, our finance controllers spent a long time handing over um, all of the kind of, you know, lots of the the day-to-day finance side of things, as well as HR and sort of centralized people development, which is, which again, is brilliant. So, you know, going through more challenging times like COVID, there were some of those more of those operational roles that we lost that we are actually now able to, and but are also really important to our business. So we're able to tap into brilliant sort of specialisms and know that we're looked after in all of those kind of operational ways as well. But I think, again, interestingly, having not, I've once worked with an public group, but having not worked in a major network kind of for a significant part of my career, I do know the difference kind of within the mission is like, you know, it's, we're not forced to work with anybody. It's like, actually, if you like them and get on with them, obviously, you know, kind of cross-selling within a group is really encouraged. But if we have a, you know, we do lots of government work through another advertising agency and it's not like we don't have to do that anymore it's really about what's the best thing for us as an organization and what therefore that's the best thing for the group so how long was it then from when you signed with advertising MA group to the actual sale just over a year and what was roughly six months of that was taken up with something else so if we'd moved forward um straight away then it would have been six months and what was it like closing how did that all go down it's definitely like a thrill isn't it it's kind of I think there was lots of it. So we'd done the full kind of due diligence process the first time around. So we kind of knew that there wouldn't be loads of skeletons in the closet and we kind of knew what would be some of those kind of issues that would come up, you know, like the lease on our existing building and all of those kind of things. But we'd, you know, having done those kind of due diligence and warranty thing the first time around, you're like, oh God, what's good, you know, what or what, do I, what don't I know about? And I think it was really, you know, it was, it was very useful to go through that a second time. There weren't really any surprises at the last minute. And I think, you know, that was great. And again, that really just also, it kind of proved that we were with the right people because we just said, look, this is when we want to we make this happen. This has been going on a long time. We don't want to lose any good people. We're in the vendor business, all of those different things. So it's just, let's set this as the completion date and let's try and stick to it. And we did. And that was the testament to the pragmatism, I think, of everybody around the table because everybody just got to that point and went, we need to get this done now. Otherwise, you know, I was definitely fatigued by it. Um, as were some of the other critical people around the table um, on our side. So 
And can you just talk just in very broad terms just about the sort of deal structure? Was it a sort of share purchase, asset purchase? Like what did did they do? It's a share purchase agreement. Purchased a hundred, yeah. So it was a share purchase agreement. They purchased hundred percent of the shares on day one. So it became mission completely. We didn't look at a kind of earnout or anything. I think just the place, the position of the business where it was at the time um, was it just it felt like the most straightforward and simple thing to do, which was to transfer hundred percent of the equity into mission from the investors and from the founders and from yeah anyone that was a kind of shareholder at the time, which again worked. It was very neat, and again was just you know we were kind of mid covid by you know coming out of covid by this point i can never remember i feel like the covid years was just never ending but we were kind of coming out of covid then no one necessarily knowing if we were going to go back into it or go back into any sort of lockdown again so with that in mind it was like let's the simplest thing to do to sustain the business as it is and make sure people are protected and go forward in that space so it was in the end quite a simple didn't feel simple to those of us who hadn't done it before but for all intents and purposes we were sort of told look this is a pretty straightforward deal and how big was the team at the time? How many full-time? Not huge, but there's 20 or so of us. Okay. And so the very senior team knew and were on board with it. And I felt like everybody kind of felt like it was the exciting and the right thing to do for the business, provided security for everyone and also provided an opportunity to learn and grow. It was new news to the rest of the team. I think that that's kind of common practice, but especially knowing that we were quite close to something and then it didn't happen. What I definitely have learned is when that uncertainty sets in, that's where challenge happens with people. And people, you know, everybody wants to know that the business is going to be all right, but quite quickly go, okay, cool, what does that mean for me? If you're not spending your time day in, day out on the business, you're kind of in the business rather than on the business, what you need to know is this, you know, do we believe this is the right thing? Why has this been done? What does it mean for my job specifically? And what does it mean for, you know, the people that I work with? And once we were able to reassure on all of those things, people kind of went, okay, and waited for something big to change and nothing kind of really drastic changed. So kind of we all just got on with business as usual. It would definitely be different for some organizations who, you know, their name changes or their structure changes or they move immediately into someone else's building, all of those things. That didn't happen to us. So actually from a team point of view, from a client point of view, loads of our clients just went, oh, that's, this is great. I mean, that was unequivocally what we had from our clients. I think knowing that COVID had been hard for us and, you know, we have great long-term relationships with our clients and you know, there's no getting away from that um, sometimes when you're kind of running a business through COVID. So all of the clients were really supportive. All of them were like, oh, great. Actually, that means that if you're going to build this for us, you know, we can get it done. All of those different things, very supportive across the industry. And generally, that's what our people were like as well, kind of worried about whether there'd be change. And when there wasn't really any change for them, most of them kind of forgot about it, I think. That's great. That was my next question, really, was the how that integration piece went in the few months following it. But it sounds like it was taken on board pretty easily by everyone and quite a smooth transition. Absolutely. And I think the transition was really interesting. And actually, kind of a year on, we are now more strategically trying to work out how we integrate. And I think that, which is a really interesting challenge, because I guess all the kind of scare stories about acquisition are like, you lose your identity, you know, you're subsumed into this and you know, you're forced to work on these kind of things. None of that's really happened, which is great on a positive day. But also the whole purpose of this is that we scale liberty in a new and different way. So a few months, you know, sort of when we got to about nine months in, we said, right, okay, where are the opportunities for growth? What are the new products and services that being part of a group with lots of different specialisms can provide us? Um, what development opportunities could that mean for our team? 
how can we better cross sell and how can we make sure that we're front of mind when brands are talking to a youth audience? And that's one of the challenges is that you've got a number of different organizations with lots of different account handlers. You know, some people who know us go, God, I've just done a pitch. I really need to bring you guys into it. But that doesn't necessarily happen because, you know, we're all busy and we're all doing our day jobs. So that kind of point of more strategic integration is something that we're definitely kind of working on at the moment for the good of our clients, for the good of our team and for the good of young people more broadly. Great. So sort of looking back on the whole process, if you had your time again, what have you learned from it or what would you do differently? I I'm sort of may have covered some of these off already. I think really, no, in a good way, we knew what we wanted and we knew what we didn't want. And I really feel strongly that we've ended up somewhere which is a really brilliant home for liberty and not just the kind of commercial value, but the cultural value fit is really strong. So I think for me, there's a bit of going with your gut as well in terms of that. I think ours was slightly different. We weren't looking at a huge earn out somewhere. And I think if you're in a kind of acquisition process where commercials are the driving force, this may seem like a moot point. But certainly when it wasn't fast and we were looking for the right home, going with your gut felt really important in terms of knowing where you felt like you would be trusted and respected and valued as an agency, I would definitely be less precious. I think I sort of said this, so the first time around kind of trying to make sure that everything that we could possibly ever need and want was part of a deal is just not realistic. And that point of being practical and going, okay, well, this is genuinely what the business needs and this is what I need as well. I think that there is a challenge when you're a CEO, not necessarily a founder of not trying to complicate what's the right thing for the business and what's the right thing for you as an individual. And those two things are actually different. So again, I would think about myself and the business separately, and I'd probably try and have someone to advise on not just on the business side, but on the personal side as well. And lastly, as I say, I would go at pace. I would have made things happen at a pace, which means you keep up the momentum, you keep up the excitement on both sides. You feel like you see the opportunity and not let that sat in. And those would be my biggest bits of advice. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's really interesting. I totally agree on the sort of both parties have got to sort of buy into the combined mission of it. So the vision of where both organizations can go together and that cultural fit is often just the most important part of it. And if those bits are, are in place, then the financials and everything else just sort of falls into place. But it's really interesting what people feel is important. So for us, Keeping the liberty, I mean, I felt really strongly that probably some of the greatest value is in our name and our reputation. And so kind of going into something where we would remain as liberty was at the time incredibly important to me. And I think still is having worked with another organization at the moment for whom the kind of work that they do in retaining their team is much more important. And actually, they don't have any problems losing their name. And it's really interesting because neither one of them is more valuable than the other. But for us and for me, it was like, this has kind of got to be a core cool part of what you buy. And for them, they're like, no, that doesn't matter. What we do is the thing that we all want to keep doing. Who we work for is is inconsequential. And it's just really interesting. And that's kind of what I mean is it's personal, professional in some way, but you've got to work out what the right thing is for you and your business and your people. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.